I want to pick up then where we are this week, talking about these core values. We've been working in this sort of analogy of the church as a tree. We've been working from the ground up, literally. So we looked at soil and roots, the trunk of the tree, the bark of this tree, last week the branches. And this week we come to the image of the leaves, the leaves on the tree. The leaves are usually the most visible part of any tree. They're the part that we most associate with life. In fact, right now we find ourselves in the fall season, which means all of the trees outside are changing colors. They're beginning to drop their leaves to the ground. Um, Last night we were at a bonfire and uh, the kids were picking up sticks to put in the fire and Charlotte was going around and picking up individual leaves one at a time to put in the fire. And there's plenty of them. The whole ground is covered in these leaves. They fade from their green to red and then to brown and then fall to the ground. And usually we recognize it as a kind of pause and ending to life until spring comes and those leaves bud out again and as spring brings new life, everything begins to grow. When you look at a tree, the the leaves of that tree is usually the most discernible feature of it, the life of this tree. And though they are the most noticeable element of that tree, those leaves that grow are really usually just a byproduct of a long list of other factors. Things like the season that we find ourselves in determine the leaves, the type of tree that you're looking at, how much rain we've had in the last few months has a lot to say about its growth. When a tree does fail to produce leaves, so behind our house we have some woods and you can pick out trees that even in the spring, for whatever reason, don't bud new leaves, we usually make pretty safe assumptions about the health of that tree or possibly the death, that the tree no longer has life because it's no longer producing leaves. And so like trees with these leaves that come each year, uh, we've chosen to depict the community around a church, the relationships of a church, as something like the leaves of this tree that we've been describing. The relationships within a church, the way we treat one another within a community of believers, it, like leaves on a tree, is one of the most visible elements of what a church is. You can walk into a church on a Sunday morning, maybe outside of the building, and the way people act towards you and the way they act towards one another says a lot about how you think about that church and what's going on within that church. Um, It's long been the adage, kind of a cliche at this point, that a church is not the building, but it's the people within the building. A church are these relationships of people within community. And like a tree, when a church becomes sick for a long list of possible reasons, usually it's the relationships within the church that are the first to signal that this sickness, this issue, has taken root. When things go wrong, usually one of the first signs of it is conflict within relationships, the deteriorating of relationships, and oftentimes those can signal the coming death of a community of believers. Um, Jesus actually makes this point in John chapter 13. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In other words, Jesus is saying is if you want to know something about a church, look at the way it treats its people. Look at the way the relationships work within that church. Look at the love that that community has one for another, and you'll understand a lot about what that group of people understands of Christ and their worship. Like the leaves of a tree, the kinds of relationships that exist within a church are oftentimes a byproduct, an indicator of the kind of life, the kind of gospel life that exists within that community. 
Now, over the last few weeks, um, I've said that these, these sermons have really been more talks. Um, I've been quoting a little more than normal. We haven't been turning to one passage of Scripture or working through a book. Uh, I've been trying in some ways to describe what I think are some of the cultural challenges that churches face. In other words, how do we be a church within this climate, this atmosphere of churches around us or our own experience with churches? How should a church be faithful to God? That's kind of a talk in a way because we're trying to figure out what this means for us. And I think this topic of community, of all the topics we've looked at, I think it's one of the real challenges that churches today are facing. And before we get too far into describing what this community should look like, us in a church together, I want to think for a minute about why community, why true deep friendships are so difficult in our world today, and why even so many churches, um, many of us would probably say we've experienced this, why even churches are struggling to produce the kinds of relationships that we want and expect. One of the things that often comes out is every year there's sort of accumulating evidence that people today have less community involvement, less relationships in their lives than they have in generations or even decades before. Uh, There was a widely reported 2006 study that has been looking at relationships within people's lives since 1985, and they concluded this. Americans have become more socially isolated, the size of their discussion networks has declined, and the diversity of those people with whom they discuss important matters has decreased. In particular, the study found that Americans have fewer close ties to those from their neighborhoods and from voluntary associations, places like churches. Um, that probably doesn't come as a big shock to you. We are less connected to people, less involved in deep relationships now than we have been even 20 or 30 years ago. Um, It is surprising, though, because we live in the age, the internet era, where we were supposed to be more connected with other people than ever before. Uh, You pull out your phone or you go home to your computer, and from that little keyboard and little screen, you have access to more people than anyone has ever had in history before us. Um, go to your Facebook page, you know when 300 different people go on vacations or have a new baby or find a new job. You have more raw information about people's lives than anybody has ever had in history before. You can find groups, an endless number of them around all of your hobbies or your interests or your diets. You can send a message, a personal message, a one-on-one communication to over a billion people on earth from this little phone you carry around with you every day. You are more connected to more people than anyone has ever imagined being in history. But all of this connectedness does not seem to have been translated into deep and meaningful relationships, friendships, and a sense of community. The American Spectator, which is a news organization, had an interesting article about these studies, and they concluded this. They said, in an era of instant communication via cell phone and email, some would argue that it doesn't make sense that people are lonely. Nevertheless, sharing, the antidote to loneliness, is not the same thing as talking. Chattering with another person can simply be a mask, a veil, a barrier, a poor substitute, and distraction from our true loneliness. Similar to having the television on in the background to keep the house from seeming empty and barren, or to make it less obvious that the people inside are not interacting with each other. Ultimately, we are free but autonomy is just another way of being alone. Autonomous individuals have no responsibilities to others, just as others have no claim on them. 
There is no obligation to care about others' troubles or even to listen when someone intrudes into another's priceless personal space in search of a sympathetic hearing of the concerns and difficulties in their life. I find that to be remarkably true. We may be the most free people who have ever lived, and in our freedom, we find ourselves to be the most alone, to experience a kind of isolation and aloneness in the middle of so much connection that few generations before have experienced. I'm not sure you could describe our situation better than that, free and alone. We can do and have anything we want, but yet we can't seem to find the deep relationships that we wish we had. Um, I've been thinking about this idea for quite some time, partly because uh, many of you know I work as a web designer and developer, so I contribute to this big thing called the internet. And I see firsthand the possibilities of the thing, and then also as a pastor, the limitations of the thing. How it doesn't answer some of these deep, deep needs of community and relationship that so many are looking for. With so much pressing for our time and our attention, I think the commodity so many of us want more than anything else is freedom. We wish we had a little peace and quiet, a little more control of our schedule to make our own choices. But to be free is so often to find ourselves also alone, to have no responsibility, to have no one pressing in on our time or attention. I think these two ideas are a kind of tension, a kind of spectrum, if you will. On one end is the person without any obligation, free to make any choice they want, to go anywhere, to do anything, to pursue whatever interests they have. They have no obligation to anyone else and all of the means and resources to pursue and do whatever their heart desires. On the other end of the spectrum are the deepest, most freedom-limiting kinds of relationships. Um, those of you who have small children or have, consider a newborn baby. A commitment that requires just about all of that freedom and all of that flexibility. Or caring for an aging parent. Or entering into a covenant marriage relationship. On the other end of this spectrum is the sacrificing of that individual freedom with the hope that through that sacrifice, a deep relationship forms. Now, what we all want is to kind of find the benefits of both extremes and to avoid the consequences. We want deep and meaningful relationships, those relationships that only come with significant investment. But we want those to come on our terms. We want people to be there for us, and we want them primarily to support our interests and affirm our needs as we're so interested in pursuing the things we're interested in. What we don't want is to be tied down by friends. That's the absolute worst. If friends are supposed to make your life easier and better and be interested in all the things you're interested in. But to find yourself in a friendship or a community or a group of people who seem to be demanding more of you than they give back, well, that's about the worst thing that we could possibly imagine. We want friends without too much commitment. We want freedom, but not so much that we feel alone. The common, and I think unescapable, denominator in those desires we have is this obsession with what we want. We get to make the evaluations. We know the kinds of friends that we're looking for. We know how involved we want to be and how much flexibility and freedom we want. We know when relationships are requiring too much and when we go looking for new ones. We tend to view our relationships like we do just about everything else in this world as consumers. We're looking for what we can get, what we need, how they'll work for us, and the most important thing is that we get to choose, that we keep control as we go looking for the relationships, the community that's right for us. Um, Tim Keller, who I like to quote often, points this out. He says this, 
Sociologists argue that in contemporary Western society, the marketplace, our consumerism, has become so dominant that the consumer model increasingly characterizes most relationships that historically were covenantal, including things like marriage. Today, we stay connected to people only as long as they are meeting our particular needs as an acceptable cost to us. When we cease to make a profit, that is, when the relationship appears to require more love and affirmation from us than we are getting back, then we cut our losses and drop the relationship. This has also been called commodification, a process by which social relationships are reduced to economic exchange relationships. And so the very idea of covenant or commitment is disappearing from our culture. Friendships become a kind of product, like maybe the sports teams that we like to watch and cheer for. When they're winning and things are good, we enjoy them, and when not, it's a whole lot easier to turn it off. Or the brand of car that we drive, the products we buy at the store, you simply choose what you want because it's best for you. If you want to belong, you can. If it's costing you too much, you can go look for a new option. Now, it's interesting because the church is supposed to be one of the places on earth where we find ourselves entering into a kind of community or a kind of relationships that are not driven by this kind of consumerism. But it's interesting that the church is a place where I think we feel this tension, the world we live in, our consumerism, the need for these deep relationships within a church. I think we feel this tension in places like church almost more than we do anywhere else. Churches, if not very careful can contribute to pitching the same kind of relationships, community as a product as we get from our culture. So often we can think about what happens in these church relationships as come try out these relationships at church. Come try out our community. or We've got special groups that can provide you those relationships. We hear phrases like, we'll do life together. Sign up to be a part of this group or the best ones. Take this personality test and we'll evaluate you and we'll plug you into the right group of people that'll be perfect for you. Individualized relationships based on your personality traits. Do you see the same sort of thing that happens in the way marketers pitch you products as well? And people do pretty much these days in church what they've learned to do everywhere else. They come, they see, they test things out, they st- stick a toe in the water, and try to decide if these relationships are going to work for me. Are these the things I've been looking for, the kinds of people I want to be friends with? Am I going to get enough out of this, and what's the commitment, the cost going to be for me? You know this hesitation because you felt it. We all have, even as a pastor. We all know what it feels like to step into that situation and find ourselves instantly evaluating how it will impact us which is the very thing that ends up leaving people feeling constantly alone. We're never quite belonging to anything because we're always in the position of evaluating it. We're always a consumer trying to decide if we want to make the purchase, if we want to buy in, or if the cost is too high. We constantly keep ourselves outside of the community as the evaluator of the community and then find ourselves never quite feeling a part of it. This is the surprising thing. So much of the way we're addressing our lack of relationships today, this lack of community, is that we use the same self-interest which created our isolation to try to solve the problem of isolation. We feel alone because we're never truly a part of a group of people, and so we go looking for a group of people to be a part of, but by evaluating it and judging it, we never truly end up a part of it, always just a consumer of it. 
You just need to keep trying, looking for other options, find better people. There's better friends out there, a better church, a friendlier church. And you just keep looking and looking and never finding yourself actually belonging. So let me say something very simple, but um, is remarkably probably hard to say and for you to hear as well. I cannot promise you that Bento Church will fulfill all of your needs for relationships and community. As much as I would love to be able to say, we can guarantee you will find a best friend at Bento Church, I can't make that deal with you. I can't promise you that we are exactly what you've been looking for in a group of people. The truth is, we're probably not. I can't promise that you'll be happier here, that your life will be better, and you'll find all of your needs met because of the relationships that are in this place. And I can't guarantee that I, nor anyone else, won't hurt you or offend you at some point. The truth is, we probably will. In fact, there may be much easier places for you to go if you're just looking for a friend. Maybe some sort of hobby club you could belong to, or a fitness class, or some school PTA. I don't know where people go to look for friends. But there are other places where the commitment levels, to be quite frank about it, are lower than what it means to be a part of a church. The cost would be less, and maybe the odds of finding someone just perfect for you would be a little bit higher than when you come to a place like this. But I want you to remember, what we've been talking about over the last few weeks is building upon itself. Remember, we aren't just saying the church exists for community. We've started from this ground level, and we've been working up to this analogy, the leaves being the byproduct of the church. The primary task of a church is not to make people friends. I want to be careful here. It's a byproduct, but the primary task of what you come to church for is not to find people that make your life better. The primary task for what you come to church for is to worship God. And as you do that, an interesting thing actually begins to happen. As you come to a place like this and you begin to worship and the people around you begin to worship, without you intentionally initiating it, a kind of community begins to form around that shared worship. We become connected to one another, not because that other person meets a need you have, but we become connected to one another as a kind of fact, not something we're trying to do, not something you're building or initiating, But you begin worshiping, and you look up and discover there are other people worshiping. Like it or not, you're now in a community, a group of people who share something. As a byproduct of that shared worship, relationships begin to form. Something no less than friendship, but also something much more than just being friends with common interests. The real task that you have before you when you come into a community, a group of people, The real task is to recognize the community that already exists, the one Christ is forming through worship, and to find yourself willing to be grateful for what is already there, not to come in as a consumer of it, an evaluator of it, but to find yourself as a participant in it and as one thankful and grateful for what you begin to recognize already exists. Um, Bonhoeffer is my favorite source for this, and he says this in his book, Life Together, which, by the way, the whole first chapter of that book is entitled Community. So many of my ideas come out of it, but he writes this. He says, because God has already laid the only foundation of our fellowship, because God has bound us together in one body with other Christians through Christ Jesus, long before we entered into common life with them, we enter into that common life not as demanders, but as thankful participants, As recipients, we thank God for what he has done for us. We did not complain of what God does not give us. We rather thank God for what he does give us. We pray for the big things, 
and forget to give thanks for the ordinary, small, and yet not really small gifts. How can God entrust great things to one who will not thankfully receive from him the little things? If we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, even where there is no great experience, no discoverable riches, but much weakness and small faith and difficulty, if on the contrary we only keep complaining to God that everything is so paltry and petty, so far from what we expected, then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the measure and riches which are there for us in Christ Jesus. In other words, as long as you consider yourself evaluating and judging the community you find yourself in, you rob yourself of the experiences and the riches of recognizing what Christ is actually doing in that place. And so by that gratitude you experience, deepening the relationships that he has provided. If I could give you two tangible things to do with this, I think they would be these sort of takeaways for today. Number one, worship Christ. Come to church to worship Christ, and you will find that you not only encounter and receive Christ, but his community thrown in with it. And number two, your real issue, the thing that's costing you relationships and community, is not that it doesn't exist, but it's your inability to recognize the one that God is already forming, that God is welcoming you into. That is to say, the real test of community isn't its fulfillment. This is what I've been looking for. These are the people I like. Everything's going so smoothly. Everyone's so kind to me. The real test of community is not what it's doing for you. The real test of community is can you be grateful for what already exists? Can you recognize Christ in it? Real gratitude isn't what we feel because the community exists. I'm grateful because I finally found the people that I want to be with. Gratitude is the thing which forms and deepens community. By receiving what already exists with gratitude, that simple act begins to create the relationships and deepen the relationships that before you were attempting to find. I actually think I could show you this in Scripture and maybe make it a little bit more clear. I already quoted from John 13, but Jesus picks up this idea of relationships or community again in John 15. If you've got Bibles, it's worth you turning there because I'm going to read through the passage, and I think it's one um, that's worth you holding on to this week as well. But John chapter 15, verse 12. John chapter 15, verse 12. The beginning of it's going to sound familiar to you. Uh, I want to read through it, and then I want to offer you a little bit of a paraphrase, my own sort of paraphrase of the Bible, not to be confused with the actual translation of the Bible, Uh, but my way of trying to help you see what I think Jesus is getting at in this passage. So John chapter 15, verse 12, maybe the most famous first line, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. For greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. For no longer do I call you servants or slaves For the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me. This is really important, Jesus says. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. 
Okay, so here's how, what I think Jesus is saying and how I want to sort of paraphrase it, um, if you'll give me that luxury. Jesus is saying this. This is what I'm asking of you. Love one another as I loved you. You know love when you see a man willing to die, to die to his own life and his desires for the sake of a friend. When you love like this, you demonstrate that you're my friend. In other words, Jesus is saying, when you're willing to die for a friend, you demonstrate that you understand my heart, that I was willing to die for you as a friend. And then he says, look, you aren't slaves any longer. Slaves don't get to know what the master is thinking or planning. They just get told what to do. If you're a slave, your primary job is just to obey, not to ask questions. But Jesus says, you, our relationship is not like that. You are friends because you're in on what I'm doing. I've shown you what I'm doing. I've invited you in to participate in how I'm working in this world. You see how God is at work. You don't get told what to do, but I'm showing you how to do it and how to do it like me. And then Jesus concludes with this. Remember, you did not choose me. You didn't come in with your evaluations and your checklist of religious ideas. Now, here's what I'm looking for in a religion. If I can find a religion that provides this, this, and this, then I'll sign up. Uh, No, Christ died for you. As the scriptures say, while we were still lost in sin, he took that sin upon himself. And so Jesus reminds them, you didn't come to me. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. I'm helping you. Anything you need, I'm giving it to you. And if you realize what I'm doing and how I'm including you in it as a friend, wouldn't it change the way that you think about how you serve friends around you? Love one another like I loved you, and you will know what it is to have a true friend. If you really want to know what a friendship looks like, it means that you're willing to turn off that switch of what's in it for me, what is this going to cost me versus what it's going to gain me. It's to turn off that switch of evaluation, to die to your own self-interest, to die to yourself for the sake of a friend. You know friendship like this, as rare as that is in this world, you know that kind of friendship because you have already received it. Christ has been your friend long before you went looking for a friend. And so now you find yourself in on it, knowing the ins and outs of what real relationships look like, experiencing within yourself what it means to be a part of a community. Christ has welcomed you into his, not because you asked for it, but before you thought to ask, he welcomes you into this relationship. And once you experience Christ, this comes back to worship, when you really begin to understand how the gospel is taking root in your life and you begin to worship God out of receiving what Christ has done for you, it fundamentally changes the way you evaluate and approach relationships in your life. Christ has freed you from looking for friendship and looking for community for your own sake. He's given it to you. Uh, As cliche as it sounds, Christ has become for you the best friend you could ever hope to find on this earth. And by so doing, by fulfilling that need, he frees you to be friends to others, not out of self-interest, but out of self-sacrifice like you have received from Christ. Now, there's something so important that you have to hear. Um, One commentator commenting on this passage in John says, we tend to always think that the initiation is with us. We tend to think that we're the one who has to initiate this, to go looking for a friend, to search one down, to find one. Would you please be my friend? Don't say that. That's a little awkward at this point, maybe in kindergarten. Uh, but that's the idea, right? How do I go track someone down and make someone my friend? But what John tells us through the way of Jesus 
is that's not how it works. We didn't choose him, he chose us. I want you to understand what Jesus is saying here so badly because I truly believe this is what so much is missing in the way of community in our churches. Christ has chosen you for all of your problems, for all of your sins, for how poorly you have been a friend and returned to him, for the number of times you've turned away from him, for the number of times that you've betrayed him. He continues to choose you. You are not primarily in charge of choosing. Christ has chosen you and is leading you and is helping you. And what matters most is are you willing to be led by him? And if you are, then what you will find is that Christ is leading you into opportunities to befriend others as he has befriended you. To whomever Christ leads you, you find yourself in an opportunity for friendship and community. Now, we will say, but that's not the person I want to be friends with. (laughs) And Christ says to us, do you think you were the kind of person I was looking to be friends with? (laughs) Christ dies to himself and pours life into us, and so we too die to our evaluations and pour this gospel grace into those relationships around us. One of the great joys that I have, honestly, of being a pastor, I didn't recognize this. When I signed up to be a pastor, just to be frank about it, I thought it was like pulpits and preaching and writing sermons, and, um, which is all great, and I enjoy doing that part of it too. But one of the surprising things, if I could, uh, that I've come to really love about being a pastor is that you get an opportunity to cultivate this appreciation for the people that God just puts in your path. Um, you may or may not know this, but as a pastor, I don't get to pick who is in the congregation. So none of you got official invitations saying, congratulations, you've been accepted to be a member of Bent Oak Church, right? At some point, you just showed up here in all sorts of random ways. Some of you I knew, some of you I had never met before. Um, a church is not like a team captain on a school playground where we get to pick, go back and forth and pick the members, right? Nobody gets picked last. We all just show up. So what pastors do is they tend to just acquire congregants. Um, We don't go out and bid on them and buy them like a baseball team might, but we just find ourselves with this group of people, which honestly is a very strange and unusual thing in this world, to find yourself called to a group of people that just sort of show up in front of you on Sunday that you didn't pick or get to evaluate. And it turns out to be, for me, one of the greatest joys of being a pastor because you get the opportunity to cultivate this gratitude and this appreciation for the people, the real people who God brings in front of you. And what you discover is that God brings remarkable people and remarkable relationships that on your own you may never have found or sought out. But as this worship increases and these relationships increase, you find that these relationships are some of the most valuable things that exist, a community of people worshiping together. I don't think that's just a pastoral calling. I think I get to do it because I get a little paycheck and I'm supposed to, and so there's some obligation, and so I try. But the reality is that that obligation exists for all of us. The moment we find ourselves in a church, we all bear the responsibility of taking seriously the people that we encounter beside us Sunday after Sunday. When you get a sense of how God has chosen you, then eventually you begin to recognize how he has chosen all of these people around you and how all of these people have been chosen to be together in this place, that this is what God is doing and that each of us have been brought here to take seriously the people around us. 
Now that sounds like a remarkably hard thing to sell to our culture. Um, imagine if we had a billboard and we said, you know, uh, there's some totally normal random people here. Some you'll like, some you won't, but we would like you to commit for a long time to showing up and spending time with these people. Nobody comes to that, right? We're all looking for something far greater, but that's the thing we're missing. The joy of relationships is receiving them, discovering them, gratitude that deepens them. We come, we participate, we set aside our consumerism and our choosing, and instead we open our eyes, we begin with gratitude, we receive, and we find a depth growing, these relationships becoming stronger. At first, we couldn't imagine making a commitment like that. I'm going to commit myself to a group of people not knowing what it will cost me or take from me or if I'll even like them in the end. But we do it nonetheless. We make a covenant like the one we make in marriages or the ones that exist as families, that here the same happens. We commit ourselves to these people for better or worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and health, to deepen these relationships as we worship together. The moment you flip your mind into the consumer mode, it all evaporates. People become objects, people become products, but if you can turn it off, if you can die to it, then every person becomes an opportunity to experience more of Christ's grace and a deeper gratitude a true relationship. Don't you see the only way to be with someone is to simply receive them with gratitude and to accept that God has brought these paths together and to worship him and to receive. So let me review. This tree image that we've been drawing begins with this common life. We show up honest about who we are, honest about where we are, real people, particulars, And what we do is we experience this gospel taking root, Christ's gospel spreading deeper in our lives. And as it does, it produces worship. We begin to worship together. We become self-suspicious and we protect this worship, this bark of the tree, by some traditions and some practices that make sure we don't ruin or mess up what exists here, this thing, this life that's beginning to flow. And then we commit ourselves to these simple acts, scripture and fellowship and communion and prayer. These branches of worship become the support for the leaves, the life, the most visible part of this church that begins to take shape. This community, these relationships that spread the life all around this worship. This image calls us to keep worshiping, to keep praying together, to keep sharing in communion, to keep turning ourselves to scripture to keep showing up with one another, worshiping, receiving, and praying with gratitude. And we suddenly recognize something. We are a part of something. We are in a community. We have been given relationships. And so by thanks, with gratitude, we receive them and begin the process of deepening what exists. Um, there's a great writer and novelist that I enjoy reading. Wendell Berry's his name. He's a uh, uh, He's probably in his 80s now, but he's been writing for decades. Um, He writes in all sorts of genres and categories. He writes about environmentalism and local farming and all sorts of things, how the modern world's ruining things like community. Uh, Not long ago, he was at a conference with another well-known writer, and the interviewer asked him a strange question. He said, if you could sum up all of your combined work, all of your books, all of your lectures, all of your tops, all the advice that you've given for decades into one bit of advice, what would that bit of advice be? Which... um, He's had some big recommendations. He doesn't use a personal computer to this day because he's against technology. So all sorts of advice he could have given. But instead, this is the piece of advice. He said, um, the simplest is to say grace at every meal. His big advice, years of work. If everyone would 
actually be grateful for the food in front of them. That I would consider my life having been successful. He goes on to say, you have to say thanks. It's all ultimately about gratitude. I think he's on to something. And I mean this as much as anything that we've said in this entire series. The most important thing you can do for the community of this church, for one another, and for the existence of meaningful relationships in your life is bow your head and to thank God for what already exists. Even when it's not all that you want it to be, even when it's not fulfilling you the way you want it to be, thank God for our church as a whole, and then begin to thank God individually for all the people that you see here week in and week out. This is one of the joys of a church our size. There are some churches where this task is impossible. Uh, It is not impossible for you this week to remember everyone you saw here on Sunday and to go to God in prayer and be grateful that they are here and that you have an opportunity to know them. Even when someone has annoyed you, which will happen. Even when someone has wronged you, which will happen. Even when someone has neglected you, which will happen. Remember what Christ has done for you. Remember the ways that you have probably annoyed, wronged, and neglected him. And give thanks for those that he has given you as friendships in this place. It sounds small. Say grace at every meal. But this heart of gratitude is the beginning of everything meaningful in relationships that exists here. I'll close with this Bonhoeffer quote again, and we'll we'll pray and then worship. But he writes this. What may appear weak and trifling to us may be great and glorious to God. Just as the Christian shouldn't be constantly feeling his own spiritual pulse, so too the Christian community has not been given to us by God for us to be constantly taking its temperature. The more thankfully we daily receive what is given us, the more surely and steadfastly will fellowship increase and grow from day to day as God pleases. That's what I want for us. As much as God has to give, no demands beyond it, no evaluations, but everything that God is doing, gratefully received and experienced. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you this morning knowing that this is an area where we deeply struggle. For many of us, we may feel like we don't have any true relationships. And for others, we may feel like we wish we had more personal space and less relationships. God, it's so easy to get caught up in what we want and what it's doing for us, to evaluate and to make judgments. And so this morning, God, we repent. We recognize that that is not how you treated this relationship with us. But we're reminded of your gospel, of how you chose us and died for us took our place, befriended us long before we thought of you as a friend. And you welcomed us into it. And we see this morning the same opportunity that you're doing here amongst this group of people. That you invite us here for all sorts of reasons, with all sorts of baggage and problems and hurts and pains and expectations. We come into this place and we sit down in pews besides one another. But yet this morning, God, we recognize that as we turn our attention to you, as we worship you, as we're reminded of what you have done for each of us, that God, through this worship, you begin to unite us together into something more than ourselves. And we begin to recognize that as you lead us, as you are a true friend, then you put us in a place and you surround us by, with people to which you call us to be friends. God, as you reminded us that 
It's our love for one another that demonstrates that we understand your love for us. And so I pray this morning, God, that we would love one another more, not by our own willpower, but by understanding and receiving how great your love is, that it would be your love, that it would be your grace, and it would be your mercy that would move our hearts to offer the same to those around us. And so this morning, God, we come with this simple prayer of gratitude. God, I, as a pastor, am so thankful for these people who exist here this morning, for each of them as individuals, for what they bring to my life and to my family. And God, I am thankful for what they bring to this church and to this group of people. And God, I know that we mess it up. I know that we're not always good friends. I know that I'm not always the friend I want to be. But God, I sense this morning that you have these people in this place for a purpose. So our first prayer to you is one of gratitude anything you would lead us into, that anything you would put into our hands, we receive with thankfulness and with joy because you have been good to us and kind to us and that you give us exactly what we need. And when we pray to you and ask God, this father in heaven, he gives us all good things. So this morning, God, whatever hole we have for relationship, whatever community we've been looking for, we recognize that you put it in our hands here in this place. God, in co-workers and family members and neighbors, that where you put us is the place you would have us by your sovereignty and by your grace. And so we receive it this morning, the broken parts of it, the painful parts of it. We receive it with gratitude because we know you are in it today, God. And so we worship you together. In a moment, we stand in this place and sing our songs to you and remember your gospel and reflect on it. And as we do by your spirit, I pray that you would bind our hearts into one accord, into unity, that we would be a people known for our love for one another and our care for one another, that it would be the the sign of life, this visible recognition that your spirit, that your gospel is at work in this place by the way we care and submit and give ourselves to one another, God, because you have done it for us. So receive this worship, move our hearts, change our hearts, Let us love one another. It's in your name we pray.